Before we introduce today's guest, a quick reminder that we really love hearing from you about how these conversations inform, inspire, or help you make sense of the world around you. So at the end of the show, we'd love you to hit subscribe and give us a quick review and some gold stars on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Now, today's guest is Jocelyn Brewer, who has, in her own words, a job of the future, a psychologist and ex-teacher who helps individuals and organisations be well-connected and mentally fit. She's been working for decades with adolescents, families and adults and really understands the complexity of our busy modern lives, the increasing role of technology in our work and our life, and how healthy digital and screen habits need to be consciously shaped by us all. But rather than see exponential technology and social media as a dark force in our lives, Jocelyn debunks the notion of screen addiction and instead invites us all to do an audit on our relationship with our technology and devices so we can make better choices about our digital nutrition. That is, what we choose to watch, like, who we follow, and how much time we're really actually spending online. In this chat, Jocelyn reveals some bite-sized morsels to help guide the use of technology for young people and for ourselves as adults. She has a wealth of resources available to download too, and she runs courses to support the younger generations who she calls digital orphans rather than digital natives because their parents haven't dined on the digital diets that are such an integral part of their lives. I started by asking Jocelyn how the worlds of teaching, psychology and technology came to collide in her own life. Jocelyn Brewer, welcome to Human Cogs. You have an interesting story that combines a background as a as a high school teacher and then a psychologist who's now fascinated by the world of technology. How do these things come to collide? I have a job of the future, I guess. You know how we tell young people that the jobs of the future won't exist? Well, here I am at, you know, nearly 44 and I have that job and I wanted to be a vet interestingly I'm the kid who really loved animals and really wanted to do that then found out what the mark was very high mark I went I'm not that smart I went into a bit of a wilderness where you know good old arts degree and a bit of human geography really sort of was the the through line I worked at Centrelink on the front desk of Centrelink and that's probably what me, what made me want to be a teacher because I realised when people are lining up at Centrelink, um, and, you know, this is at the very late 90s in the inner city, that it's probably too late. And, and so I went into teaching and then retrained as a school counsellor. And part of my project there when I was, when I was becoming a psychologist was to look at boys and um, gaming and, and what was happening with when we were handing out um, laptops to kids as a part of the digital education revolution of 2008, uh, what was going on there and how good were they at hacking the, uh, the, the Wi-Fi and the firewalls at school and things like that in order to, to play video games. So that's really where this kicked off um, about 2008, 2009, and then I created Digital Nutrition in 2013 because I was like, this digital detoxing stuff we're talking about just sounds wrong. It just sounds not something we want to kind of keep talking about. What's digital nutrition? Yeah, digital nutrition is a positive technology use philosophy, uh, which is sort of like I think one of the early ones that was to talk about what our healthy digital habits like um, and what are, how do we shape our relationship with technology because I think we haven't had any of those 
kind of conversations where no one sort of sits us down and when you get your your new shiny device out of the box, it doesn't come with like how to put guardrails in 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 place around how do we, you know, maintain healthy and, you know, inverted commas, they're healthful living sometimes because health in itself is sometimes quite moralistic, you know, habits that that support us be our best selves. Yeah, maybe they need a trigger warning or the wrapping like around a cigarette packet that says, beware, this is addictive. Yeah, or a nutritional label that says, okay, when you're on this platform, these are the kinds of things that you might find yourself slipping into. Here's the additives, but here's also the virtual vitamins. So here's some things that are really positive about it. Vitamin C for connection connection or creativity, vitamin E for empathy. Like, can you actually go into some of these online spaces and develop the good stuff? And what do you need to know about how to avoid some of the pitfalls? And you started with a focus on teenagers who have been, you know, vilified almost for their relationship with technology, but you now work across the lifespan from little, little people to adults. How do you compare and contrast (laughs) all of our our relationship with technology across the lifespan? I think we all have very similar struggles, but um, adults have a lot more guilt with it because it is a lot, much more to do with our work. So the boundaries that we have with work, because our work is often facilitated through devices these days. So increasingly, I started with teenagers and as a mum of a four and a half year old, I'm very fascinated with, with, you know, screens in, in early childhood and the impact of that again because I don't think there's a lot of understanding of what we're really giving up when when you see you know little people who are very apt with devices and and really um, almost reliant on that highly sensory input that they're constantly consuming that way but increasingly it's the parents too it's the parents in the in the workshops that I do that put their hand up and say yeah look my kid's got a bit of a problem but can you help me with my issues and how do I stop my boss from emailing me late at night and expecting me to be online Mm. you know pandemic has really amplified these issues because you know are we working from home or living at work and the the porous boundaries and that ability to to have you know really defined on and off switch just isn't there like it it doesn't exist and maybe we don't want it to because there is uh, lots of benefits to that flexibility what is your answer to because that is a really common question let's go there in a solution focused way or at least unpack that idea of boundaries when Mm. people say people keep emailing me overnight what do you say to them well what I say is from depending on your industry depending on the team that you're in you really need to look at social contracts which is basically all about how do we agree we communicate and even within a team uh, there will be some people who have a body clock that says I'm up until 11 o'clock feel free to email me but not going to reply or look at anything before nine. And then there's other early birds who are doing their best work at at 5am. So really um, looking at an individualised nature of of like how can you work as a team, What, how do you have meetings, what's the purpose of meetings these days too? Like the nature of the face-to-face meeting I think is is really out the door. We're really re-evaluating all of that. I always say that a meeting is really not a meeting unless there's food there. (laughs) That, you know, you've got to rock up with some kind of food, otherwise they're not coming you've got to have an agenda you've got to take minutes and there has to be an outcome because if I miss that meeting and there's nothing that I've missed then it was really just a chat 
and that's probably not an effective way of, of working. It might be great for engagement and your team, but, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? During the pandemic, we've all worked harder than we ever have. And of course, that blurry line between work and life has, has been really complex to navigate. We've also seen a lot of businesses, uh, there's been a huge step change in how we think about work and making work work for you. As you say, working early morning, late at night, you've got kids, whatever's going on in your life. There are some companies that have done some really great experiments, you know, gone to four-day workday, Inventium or Atlassian just did a, a, an experiment on that as well. Um, and what we haven't yet understood fully is what work looks like on the other side and that that even hybrid working models and some of the expectations we, we set around that 24-7 work cycle, we don't really have a playbook for it. And um, and it's very unique to an individual's culture, uh, you know, um, sorry, to an organisation's culture and the individuals that sit within it. What's your view around what this, this big hybrid theory um, is going to look like where we think about a working life that is manageable, sustainable and actually caters for the individual? Uh, they're such fascinating questions and I guess, as you say, there's no playbook. I don't know what that will look like because you have some really big players like Atlassian who do fantastic stuff with a really authentic focus on wellbeing right they're really interested in that not not just kind of doing lots of surveys and you know yelling about it but again from a from a micro level because of those individual differences there has to be I guess some guardrails in place and what that what that looks like for different you know organizations you know as an ex-teacher I think well it's fine if you have different um yeah a different chronobiology but the bell is still going to ring at nine and then again at three so there's not a lot of innovation in some of that um it's it's really a conversation an ongoing conversation that you know to some degree it's it's like some people really want to get back to the office and there's benefit in that and then yeah it's so so complicated and and industries I think really have to um consider that from their particular perspective and what's going forward in the next five years like what would that look like yeah and the rapid digitization of of sectors that previously did not have technology as an enabler of their services or or their value creation in the world can can i can i just do a big gear shift here i was listening to you talk about um you know technology with young people and 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 technology as an enabler for the workforce but just switching gear into technology where we look at young people interfacing with whether that's gaming um, or social media and most of our listeners and I'm sure um, you would be familiar with The Social Dilemma, the documentary uh, that, that, that examined patterns of social media use and what it was doing to create some issues with young people. Um, what's your view on social media in and of itself? There's several things here. One is the research that we do and even the social dilemma itself I think is a fascinating example of using all of the plot twists and the psychological tricks to get people to watch that documentary. There are many excellent names in that industry that were interviewed for that documentary um, for hours on end that hit the cutting room floor, which is what happens in, you know, most films and documentaries and things like that. But it did actually represent a particular, you know, sort of fear-based perspective. And I I thought it was hilarious because it was a bunch of dude bros going, whoops, sorry, and it was very martyry. So it generated a fantastic conversation. The conversation that we need to have and that we're having again, thanks to Frances Hagen and her kind of um, whistleblowing at Facebook, is about the quality of the research that we're doing on the impacts. Because even when we look at what happened at Facebook and the data from Facebook, it is crappy data. It's really rubbish. And if you tried to write a peer-reviewed paper using it, you'd probably get shot down by your ethics committee and you'd never get the research up. So it's easy to use all of the kind of 
you know, sensationalism and the clickbait stuff to actually get people freaking out. The more we freak out, the more in the long term we don't really do anything to solve the problem, right? And so I'm interested in, you know, talking about very nerdy things like getting better methodology, getting pre-registration so we can see what people are actually looking for, not that they come up with a whole bunch of data and they cherry pick and they do a whole bunch of nerdy statistic things, but then they go, oh, look at this negative effect size. Or getting and getting better regulation and policy so that those tech giants are subject to the same market conditions and you know checks and balances that other companies are because we know it's a wild west out there and we're scrambling to write the policy to meet what's happening, um, the problems that are being created. Exactly. So let us look at your data and release that data and let us shape that data and then let's talk about the quality of the data um, and and open it up to the people who actually, you know, can can make some more independent decisions. So it it does get quite, you know, complex with all of that. I mean, let's talk about algorithms because that's part of the problem as well Um, and the the gated nature of of the algorithms as being, you know, the golden goose within those spaces. So um, overall what I would say there is it is so much more about what you're consuming and who you're following and the content that you're looking at than the fact you actually have the account. Many studies are starting to show a little bit great actually improves your mental health too much and the question is exactly what constitutes too much is probably going to be negative again because of the displacement but looking at that actually what is it is what studies don't tend to do yet properly and and that algorithms will over index toward your click behavior um or like behavior and so it'd be the algorithm itself is neutral but it becomes a bad actor in its in its design because it is designed with bias a but also the user then doesn't understand the unintended consequence of their interaction with the social feed and then you end up getting this very distorted view of the world uh and i know todd Sampson's recent documentary mirror mirror um which was an amazing and albeit one snapshot was an incredible look in at that and how it can uh, create things will contribute to things like body dysmorphia or really um, unrealistic images of what what perfection looks like. Exactly. And that comes to my point, which is you can't actually dose two people with the same amount of technology because you've fed your algorithm. I've fed the Facebook algorithm for nearly 15 years. Uh, So you can't dose me and another person sitting next to me with the same feed because it's never going to show up that way. But that's Mm -hmm. the kind of research that we might like to do is if you could actually feed two, you know, 15-year-olds the same um, visual information, what emotions and cognitions would come out of that? Who has the media literacy and who doesn't? And then how does that play out then into how they show up in the world, whether they're anxious and depressed or whether they go, look, I know that's the algorithm and an influencer who took, you know, 87 photos with lots and lots of filters in order to sell me a product. They're the kind of, that's the education I want to see out there for for everyone that we have better conversations how it works. Let the buyer beware. That's the first lesson I would teach as a year nine commerce teacher. Um, You know, you've got to be a conscious consumer. So when we walk into this, you know a little bit more about what's going on. I think there's a real gap here between the young person and their behaviour, their knowledge, their insights and their needs compared to the parent who is often measuring screen time, as you say, Jocelyn, by minutes or hours, mm-hmm. not what content is being delivered and there's, and saying, well, you've had your two hours or your three hours or whatever it is, regardless of what they're eating. 
Exactly. And and I think that, you know, screen time, I jokingly say, is, you know, another tool of oppression that was created by the patriarchy to make mums have to worry about stuff um, because it's it's just this blunt instrument rather than, you know, looking at, looking at the, the virtual vitamins and that content. So as a parent who has an awareness around this but not detailed knowledge, what can they do? What can we do as parents? It's this radical thing that you can do um, called talk to your kids about what they're <laughs> they're watching yeah like actually be curious and and rather than you know be curious not furious I think is one of those great parenting sayings that when you go so tell me what the deal is like what's hot on TikTok this week what do I need to know to stay current this is like what what I do in therapy a lot you know the different um, explanations of the squid game that I've gotten from clients this week oh yeah I don't have to watch it because they've told me what it's all about. My kids, I talk to about that. Here's a case in point because they were all watching it and my I've got four daughters and, and so the older three were watching it, age 20 to 16. Then the 12-year-old gets wind of it because all of her friends are watching. Turns out I haven't watched it myself. It sounds horrific and traumatic and I said it sounds really violent and disturbing and one of my daughter's responses was, oh, it's just fake blood vibes, Mum. So I wondered, is it my problem where I watch something and I feel deeply disturbed by it, where I see violence on screen, but they are able to actually really dissociate and separate um, and they say, it's just fake, it's made up, it's not real because they're digital natives. They've been doing that since they were born. Yeah. And and this is kind of parlays into the conversation about um, violence in video games and whether they're go playing a game this is acceptable. I wouldn't do that in the playground. And I think, yes, there is some literacy and un- of that for a good chunk of kids but for some kids there's maybe not that distinction and again it comes from whatever the kind of skills that you have to read that information and, and you know literally consume that and also then what what do you have sitting behind you so do you have a parent that you can go to and go I just saw this horrible thing I need you to help me make sense of it and for a lot of kids they don't have the connection with the parent when they see something whether it's you know watching the squid game or it's coming across pornography or being sent nudes or all that kind of stuff, if they don't have the person that they can go, this feels not right for me, this feels really yucky, can we talk about it? That's where things really go wrong. Yeah. So so you're really saying that the boundaries need to be set but the boundaries need to be off the back of um, a curiosity and an exchange to better understand what, what, what their interpretation, what their experience has been of the content. Absolutely. Like just more keeping the bridge to conversation and communication open with young people by sort of giving them a sense that they are experts in their own lives because they are the kind of digital natives in inverted commas that they're the ones who um, have this, I guess, comfort, you know, sense of comfort growing up in this space. I call them digital orphans because they're growing up without a Uh, kind of generation above them who knows what's going on and knows how to kind of deal with this wild west they're actually yes they might be native to that space but they don't have those guardrails from adults to, to help kind of shape that I mean they do in that we are asking these questions more but we certainly don't feel comfortable and don't sort of understand like what's TikTok or what's the point in that, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, we, we other it because it's so different to growing up for me in the 90s where, you know, crowding around a Dolly magazine was about as, you know, as much media as you got. <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite right. And, and there's a real generational gap and there's some literacy and bridging to do to enable parents to understand, unpack 
support and, and engage with their students in, in the digital, with the um, kids in the digital world. We, uh, one of my companies, Girl World, did a, a big study with girls looking at identity development, trying to understand how they navigated their identity or themselves on and offline. And we asked the question thinking they were two very separate things. And we did a big forum with a whole bunch of teenagers called In Search of Selfie. So how do we understand self when there's a lot of editing of our lives um, online? They really didn't create the distinction um, that friendship is happening in this this rolling pot that is in real life when we don't live through pandemics. Um, and then it's rolling over into in the evenings where they're in and out of all these environments. It's quite fluid. And I think that's very interesting because I saw them as two quite separate things that they would behave differently in those spaces, but they saw it as a continuous uh, friendship or relational loop. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about real life, I go, what is real life? What are you referring to? Are you talking about face-to-face when I'm actually experiencing the full, you know, human with their heart beating in front of me? Or are you talking about real life right now, which is we interact on multiple platforms with sometimes more, sometimes less information in order to kind of read those cues. But real real life is online. Um, So people who are still trying to make those distinctions are usually people who haven't really grasped what some of these platforms mean, what it means to form your identity, where you can go, oh, that's fake blood and, and you know, that's uh, not really what real life looks like. I understand the machinations of, you know, that celebrity or that influencer. I mean, the word influencer didn't even exist until two years ago officially. And that in itself, like, if we think about how young people are shaped indelibly and, and as adults, of course, you know, you, you're always shaped by what's around you then... You know, exposure repeatedly, you know, to too much of influencers or people who are putting, let's say it's fake news or misinformation about what their life really looks like, then that is creating a false um, and unattainable narrative for young people. So there is some complexity there. Comes back to what you say, what you consume. Uh, the nutrition, if it's a bit shit, um, then you're not going to form your own sense of self or identity because you've got not the right role models and set of things around you. We had that too with supermodels in the 90s. And I remember a campaign that I worked on when I worked in PR decades ago. Uh, we came up with the slogan that there are 3 billion women in the world who don't look like supermodels and eight who do. Yeah. It was with the body shop that I worked in PR. So I can I just say I was trying to find that quote online last week, Sabina, and I could not find it. We need to bring that back because I use this all the time. So this is perfect. This was an ungoogleable thing. It's the second thing in my life I haven't been able to find an answer oh, to. Wow. I, 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 bet I, I bet I can deliver that for you. I will find is that and human. send that to you. That is gold. <laughs> but but don't you think that's an issue? I mean, you you know, Sabina, you've got two girls. I've got four girls, you know, Jocelyn, you, you've, you've got a daughter. I mean, as mothers of daughters, indeed, as, as parents or guardians of daughters, how do we start to help them form healthy body images and relationships with their own physical form when so much of the world online is visual? It, it's one-dimensional from that point of view in many ways. As Ben was saying, and I'm sorry I cut you off, but that is a perfect example because there was like, you know, six supermodels and now there's 60,000 influencers. So so the, the kind of prevalence of these kind of images, it's not just, you know, Cindy and Naomi and oh, I'm too Audio. old to even remember Eight. all of their names, right? <laughs> um, Linda, uh, that... <laughs> 
that there's like all of these people. And part of that is that, you know, you can't keep up with that number. So there's this great number called Dunbar's number. I'm sure it's been like completely dismissed by now, but it's something like, you know, you can only really have deep and meaningful relationships with maybe up to 150 people. Most young people have thousands of people that follow them and they follow. And we're literally trying to look into people's lives. And so if many people are then trying to aspire to this Instagrammable life, we're not really getting a diverse digital diet. You know, it, it, there's one Celeste Barber for all of the people who actually are aspiring to that thing and there's one person taking the piss. We need more people who are kind of representing a really authentic, not a performative authentic uh, way of being. Now, unfortunately, you know, that's not that, that sexy or exciting. That's why we go to the movies and we watch rom-coms. We don't necessarily... Um, you know, consume tons and tons of documentaries about all the thing, the other things in life. So it's it's the nature of humanity, I guess, is to to seek out the the glitzy fun stuff. You like to debunk the idea of addiction too. That's mm-hmm. not a helpful framework for you. What would you use in place of addiction? Yeah, like addiction, I guess, especially in terms of um, when we're talking about young people and devices that we handed to them for Christmas or their birthday and for learning, I think it's just really unhelpful because clinically uh, we wouldn't wouldn't necessarily use that and certainly we reserve that for the really pointy ends of of people with problems. Um, I think highly engaged, passionate, obsessed maybe, um, some of those words that really indicate the the compulsion and sometimes that's not a good thing. I'm, I'm not trying to paint it as not addictive but certainly when we start throwing this word addiction around I think it comes with some really polemic and icky uh, connotations that again if we go back to our 90s references um, people you know like the junkies and things like that that was not a you know train spotting references that was not they're the addicts they're the people who have really significant issues and again when we step back from that and we look at people who are long-term drug users, there's often a whole bunch of trauma going on there and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. So kind of saying, oh, I'm so addicted to social media. Well, is that because you have a guilty pleasure and you're really struggling with balancing out aspects of your own life? Is there, you know, is that just kind of a a term that we're using instead of, uh, you know, other other more complex words in our um, fabulous vocabulary that we have. So in the world of addiction, uh, I, I hear your point, Jocelyn, that, that there are differences. But to, to dip back into the world of addiction, one of the constructs is enabling. And mm. I wonder how that fits with, with this story. And again, I'm going to invite this question through the lens of parents, not mm. with the not not with the blame, but but with an invitation. How, how can we do different so we're not enabling? Yeah, I, I think that often now it's about families sitting down, having really decent conversations about where technology fits and parents being boots in with what they want to change as well. So rather than it being this overarching, we're coming in and we're going to all turn, we're going to turn the Wi-Fi off at 9.30 or whatever that might be, that there's a bigger conversation around goals and values. So I teach a course about designing a tech use agreement for families and it's much more about designing a life that you love than it is about really designing technology. And that's 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 the kind of spoiler to my whole course is people come in thinking, I'm going to tell you how many minutes of screen time. And I say, let's talk about your values as a family. Have you as a parent sat down and thought about what that looks like? And yeah, so I- you're not just taking something away either. 
you're adding what what yeah. matters. You're adding the ingredients to use your yeah. your food metaphor that mm. fills you up and that yeah. that tastes good, as opposed to taking out all the sugar and all the fat and then serving that up. Also, just building on that, um, where we think about who's like humans build the tech. We build the shiny new thing and we run toward the shiny new thing. And where we've heard all the dystopian versions of catapulting into the future, the robots are going to take our jobs, we'll reach singularity the moment at which, you know, the supercomputer is smarter than all of humanity together. There's a lot of, you know, um, Yuval Noah Harari wrote the book Homo Deus about this sort of imagined dystopia where we had transhumanism, where we are actually but we have our biology, our biology, but we actually insert bits of technology into our bodies to make us superhuman. So I think there's been technology's got a bad rap from that point of view and that actually if we think about a human-first society, which is what you're saying, is come back to who are we as humans and how will tech play a role because we choose it. It's not driving us. We are choosing when we want to interact with that rather than the other way around. Yeah, yep, that, that we, we want to look at the humanity of it. Absolutely. You know, humans design that algorithm. It might be better if there was some more diverse humans, you know, developing that algorithm. That'd be good. What are some things then, um, Jocelyn, that, you know, come to mind, you know, a few few points you might have then for someone who either as a parent or an individual is really trying to reset the tech boundaries for themselves where they know they're overusing? So what I would recommend is that we consider the three M's of digital nutrition, which are mindful, meaningful and moderate. So mindful is really about being present to what you're doing. So I I think, you know, apply before scrolling, right? Before you go into whatever online activity, am I being really mindful? Have I got a clear intention about what I'm doing, what I'm searching for? Am I just, you know, being mindless? That's okay too. How long do you have to be mindless? Uh, uh, Meaningful, really connected and aligned to the stuff that matters. And that's a question I use with families all the time. So what's the stuff that really matters? Uh, And this It has been shown by um, even research from an organisation called the Female Lead where when they got some young women and they got them to really focus and curate their feed on the stuff that mattered to them, so um, career options, people in their field that they aspired to, all of that sort of stuff, when they looked at the mental health outcomes, they were much improved because literally they were consuming stuff that was more aligned and more meaningful to them. And, again, very aligned to positive psychology of finding meaning and purpose. And then moderate in terms of, yes, screen time is still a thing. We still only have 24 hours in the day. No one has hacked that yet so we are displacing something there and we need to consider what that is often it's sleep and then it's exercise and those are absolutely central to our well-being and we need to protect them as much as we can there's a little bit piece to moderate too is in that we're moderating how we um, react online because with you know here we are yes you're hearing our audio but we are actually um you know on zoom and looking at one another which helps make that conversation happen and flow and we're able to temper our responses so for people who kind of late at night jump online and sort of get really outraged it's because they're missing that um eye contact and eye contact really kickstarts kindness and kickstarts empathy so moderating how we uh uh, respond online is a the other aspect of moderation and emotional literacy and relational literacy in a way I mean I think there were some studies done although I'm not the researcher in this call but um some studies done on young children who who were deprived of, of, of face like real-time FaceTime with their parents and then failed to actually meet some of those developmental milestones around reading uh facial expressions or, or body language which are very 
powerful part, of course, of how we connect with other people. Yeah, it's called the still face experiment. So you can Google and find the video. And it's actually been replicated recently. Um, The youngest ever TED talker was a seven-year-old called, I'm going to get this wrong, maybe Maddie, I think her name might have been Maddie. Um, And she came out and she showed the still face experiment when it came to um, devices. So in the still face experiment, little kid and mom interacting, go, 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 la, 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 mom goes like deadpan. And the kid's like, what? And works really hard to try and get the serve and return happening. And similarly, what we see these days is the phone kind of comes in between the little one and you, and then they have to work really hard to try and get your attention. So they're competing for your attention with the device. So we've we've probably heard, you know, kids are not attention-seeking, they're attachment-seeking. And and this is really one of the concerns that I have from, um, you know, my research perspective is looking at technoference, the interference of technology on that really important early relationship and and speech development even. Mm. You said, um, Jocelyn, that you teach courses. What other uh, resources can people tap into that could help them if they want to learn more about your work and these topics? Yeah, I've got a bunch of free downloads and different ideas that have popped out of my brain in the last eight years. So there's things like the due diligence report. Next time your kid comes to you and says, I really, really have to have this game or this app in order to be, you know, cool. You say, sure, no problem. Here's a list of questions you need to go and make me a report and tell me exactly like who made it, what are they, what are the terms and conditions? How old do you need to be? You know, um, how much money did they make? All of those kinds of due diligence that hopefully parents would be doing, but we go and make that an actual literacy uh, activity for, for young people. Um, there are courses that will pop up across. I'm probably going to run one more tech use agreement this year because people are nagging me to do that before, you know, everyone gets new devices for Christmas and people are like, I need to plan this before, which they absolutely do. Screens in early childhood, there's some stuff on that and just generally how to kind of have better habits and, you know, the three M's, some of the virtual vitamins and talks and things like that so Mm. but also for adults because we want to make this clear that we've got this focus on parents we've been we've been asking you about Mm. what we do as parents but I'm I'm as interested uh, now my kids are adults Mm. Um, I'm interested in this conversation with regards to my own use my own approach my own interpretation of where technology fits in my life yeah yeah so I I mean I kind of give parents homework which is to go and play a game you know, go and, go and immerse yourself in the thing that you think kind of is a bit weird and unusual. I sort of jokingly say if you're too busy to play a video game with your kid for 20 minutes, you better go and play for an hour because that's how important understanding their world is um, or at least not invalidating their world, I guess. Yeah, for sure. What does your non-tech time look like? Uh, I went to yoga for the first time this morning in a long time Um, and I am sitting here looking out at a very kind of rambling suburban garden where we have a range of veggies growing and chooks that need, you know, rounding up and cleaning up and um, things like that. So I tend to go and attempt to be a bit of a green thumb um, and just hang out with my kids. So the trampoline gets quite a workout, excellent for the pelvic floor. Um, (laughs) things like that um and I'm really a bit old school so I'm sitting here with um a journal I still journal by hand I do a lot of notes by hand so um writing in that kind of you know morning pages doesn't tend to happen in the morning but that kind of thing is yeah 
my offline brain time. I do sometimes still pick up my phone and, and often the first thing I do in the morning is pick up my phone and delete emails that I don't need. That's probably not the, the walking the talk part, but I find that kind of just sets me up for the day because I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, you know, own that one. Yeah, because they say that's not a good way to start the day, is it? Like you should start the day with intent and not have that sort of to-do list in your face as, as soon as you wake because you get hyper-stimulated. Do you, like, to what extent do you drink your own medicine? Like do you do your own due diligence around technology you buy or, or do an audit on yourself around your own use? Yeah, I'm quite strict with some of that, especially in terms of upgrading technology. So I'm the person who has the stuff that's really old and doesn't connect to anything. And I did a re, like, and then I go and buy it all at once. And I don't tend to kind of, you know, get on board with too many new things because it's just overwhelmed for me to have to like log into a new place and do this and do that. And there's too many doodads. Often I like the 1997 approach, which is just do the analog version. And because I'm quite organised, all the bits of paper or all the, you know, things that I print out do get filed perfectly away. I'm not a huge techie. I mean, I've worn a Fitbit for a long time and I like to make sure I, you know, track my sleep. I love to see what my sleep's doing. Um, So I like that information because it helps me then stay on, on target with my goals around being really well rested to be able to do lots of thinking work. Are you also counselling individual clients still? Like, do you have a clinical practice or has that gone by the wayside with these no, new No, I do. Jobs? I've got 19 people this week. I'm booked out for another three weeks. So, yeah, and no, I've kept that up and running because often now I'm niching into families who are needing specific, you know, support when, you know, I think when the course doesn't go very well and there's a lot of aggression and, and true that pointy end um, addiction. So I work with a lot of um, young men, but um, young women, families, and, and then general kind of anyone who's interested in, in shaping their, their worlds positively and up for doing the therapeutic work, which is not always, you know, fun and easy. And when we think about shaping the world um, and go a bit meta here, when you think about where the world's at and we see a lot of, you know, instances of, of, of cyber attacks and technology playing an ever-present role in all of our lives and, and work, mm-hmm. when you cast forward, what do you feel when you think about technology into the future? Oh, um, I, it's exciting, but we really need some good players. We really need some strong guardrails and we need to, I guess, have regulation that stops conglomerates becoming these ugly arcs and growing and growing and growing. And I think it's kind of, I sometimes give the example, it's kind of like the film industry, even within the gaming industry, but the tech industry, there is the big Hollywood blockbuster, the thing that you see everywhere, but there's these beautiful smaller organisations that do excellent work that we really as consumers have to go looking for and sometimes not looking that hard for in order to engage and have some of those needs met. So there's lots of fantastic regulation. The Office of the E-Safety Commission in this country is amazing. We're very lucky that we have it. And the safety by design principles um, that, you know, um, Julian and Grant has worked really hard on are fantastic for trying to shape some of these things so that we have more ethical principles underpinning anything that gets designed. And obviously when we have conversations about the metaverse, which if you're not familiar with, is kind of that next iteration of the internet. I think we really want to focus on making sure that happens well, as well as possible by ensuring there's lots of diversity in how that's developed. Yeah, I still don't get non-fungible tokens. Like, yeah, it's it's a whole other world, isn't it? That's just emerging. I mean, it's been nascent. But the same with Bitcoin and some of the other new digital currencies, they're just now coming up to meet the, you know, the, the 
the real world economy and increasingly we'll see these things join. But it's a fascinating time to be alive and we just hope that the tech that takes us forward is going to enhance humanity um, and keep us being human after all. Um, Jocelyn, we'd like to end all of these conversations with uh, the same question to our guest um, and that is when you think about the world, the metaverse, where we're all at, uh, down to how you spend your days with your chickens, who, who do you think is doing human really well? Uh, I'm going to go with, it's probably really obvious at the moment though too, Ben Crow. I can't get enough of his stuff. Um, Ben Crow? Yeah, I just really, really dig how real his stuff is. He is like kind of like a real Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is a little bit over the top, (laughs) but he's kind of like the, the normal Ted Lasso. I think he should be the next um, like psychologist person, coach person within Ted Lasso to replace Dr. Sharon. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, Ben's a mate of mine. I'm going to pass that on to him from, from you. That's a beautiful summary. I, I prescribe his um, Mojo Crow app to a lot of families. So part of the, almost the tech agreement is to go and do Mojo Crow as a family. Um, if not that, then watch Ted Lasso as a family. You know, Ted Lasso being the opposite of the squid game, basically. Yeah. Beautiful. And we chatted to Ben on the podcast. We, so anyone who's listening, uh, you can go and find out how awesome Ben is by going back into our into our back catalogue and we've got a chat we had with him last year. And check out his, as you say, Mojo Crow app. It's wonderful. Just to finish, Jocelyn, I love what you've got at the end of your email signature. You've written here, <laughs> Um, this is a calm inbox. I work flexible hours, so I send emails at random times. Most of my emails are brief and to the point. Life is too short for long emails. You will generally get a reply within 24 hours on business days. Trust me, I read and archive everything meticulously. And that is a beautiful example of being the change that we want to see. So thank you for your time today on Human Cogs and sharing some really practical and thought-provoking insights. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Bo. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.